You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's open our Bibles and turn to Revelation 7. If you don't have a Bible, grab one in the seats in front of you and find Revelation 7 on page 1031. You know, the blessing of expository preaching is that each sermon builds on the previous sermon as we study books of the Bible. But the challenge is, is we live in a a very transient world today. And so you might be here this week, but gone next week on business or vacation or sports tournaments, and it's very difficult for us to develop a pattern of life where week in and week out we are in this place studying this book and building week upon week. And I wish that I could spend time at the beginning to be able to spend 15 minutes unpacking last week to set up this week and then allow us to be able to move forward, but I don't have that time. And so I simply reference last week, but ask you to make sure that you're listening to the sermons, make sure that you're engaging with them so that we all can be building and understanding God's word together. But last week was Revelation 6 as the lamb who is worthy to break the seals of the book did so. And six accounts of what God is doing in the time from his ascension to Jesus' second coming were incredibly unpacked through four horses and four riders on those horses, and then a scene of the saints that cried out under the altar, and then this amazing account of cataclysmic events, worldwide events described by earthquakes and the sun going dark and the moon turning red and the stars no longer being in the sky. And we realized that that was descriptions that we see throughout Scripture of a final judgment, a a massive judgment. And I don't know about you, but that account was exhausting to me. And so as we turn our attention to Revelation 7, what God does for us is allow us to take a breath. To have an intermission, as it were. Because as we get to the end of Revelation 6, as we get to the unpacking of the sixth seal we might expect Revelation to begin providing details of the new world. To begin providing details of the new heavens and the new earth. Because after all, the sixth seal seems to be describing the final judgment on creation. And yet, listen to this quote. Revelation is not ready at this early point in its dramatic development to expose fully God's plans for the new world. Instead, at this point, it suffices that the saints receive his promise in general terms. Logically, as you think about a scene where the details are given of the final judgment of the world, we would expect the new heavens and the new earth to be chapter 7. But Revelation is a dramatic presentation of how heaven sees redemptive history unfold. And in that vein of a dramatic presentation, Revelation is going to pause and then review those six seals from a different angle once again. But there's an important breather 
that God gives to John, and it is intended to help the seven churches of this original audience and also for us at Ascend Church today. And that is to introduce to us our superpower. I love superhero movies. Maybe some of you do too. And I like to imagine what my favorite superpower would be. And so I'm sure you've maybe gone through that exercise and maybe somebody has asked you, what would your superpower be? For me, it would be flying. I don't know why. I'm deathly afraid of heights. But maybe that would help me overcome it. I would love to be able to fly. And this concept of superpower reminds me of a movie that I watched a few years ago, Shazam. Shazam is the the account of a a young boy, 14, named Billy Batson. He's gone from foster home to foster home, and he's had a a problem childhood, and he, he runs away from these foster homes, and he's really just struggling in these early years of his life. And and somehow the ancient wizard Shazam chooses Billy Batson to give him the superpowers of Shazam. And those are amazing superpowers. He can, he can fly. Bullets do not affect him. He has superhuman strength. And there's all of these superhero superpowers that are wrapped up in the Shazam empowering. And, and at the beginning, he doesn't quite understand all of the powers, and they kind of show up in different ways. But throughout the movie, he, he learns more about them. He understands how to use them. And, and here's what happened. It, it grows his confidence, and he begins to be able to face challenges and villains he never would have imagined possible because of his superpowers. And in that kind of strange beginning of an illustration, it sets up what I think the purpose of chapter 7 is for Christians of all ages is to highlight the superpower that is given to us to give us confidence and courage to face challenges and villains we never thought possible. Look at the big idea in your notes. After the six seals, we are to take a breath and remember, you and I have a superpower and we need to use it. So there's going to be two training exercises in this chapter. And then finally, I'm going to walk through five application points so we can understand and use our superpower. Let me read chapter seven and then we will unpack it together. The Apostle John writes in Revelation 7, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 
12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are those clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Father, I pray that you would give us understanding. We desperately need your Holy Spirit to move in our minds and in our hearts to help us to not feel what we think this text means, not to depend on models or systems or pastors or authors, but instead to wrestle with the text itself and to take the principles of interpretation that Jesus and the authors of scriptures modeled for us so that we can understand. Would you grant this to us, I pray. Amen. The first training exercise for us to better understand and apply our superpowers to remember, number one, we are sealed. We are sealed. Now, as I read 144,000, as I went through that list that some of you might have wanted me to skip because it seemed like it was repetitive, you likely drew from previous understanding of 144,000. Maybe you thought of the Jehovah's Witness and you immediately began to ask questions of the text. You might have brought your own conclusions to the text. Here's what I want you to do today, as I've asked you to do previous, and that is let the text speak for itself. My my goal this morning is to show you how I got to the conclusions that I've drawn so that you yourself can follow these examples and study it and conclude for yourselves. So beginning in verse 1, we see that familiar phrase that we saw in verse 4 after this. Do you see that in the text? For some of you, this might be new. For others, it is a review. But the original Bible did not have chapter numbers and verse numbers. So what the authors did when they wrote the original text is they would use phrases, they would use language to be able to signal to the readers transitions, to be able to help the readers understand flow. And this phrase after this is one of those. 
What John is doing when he says after this is not showing that this necessarily is happening chronologically. He's not necessarily saying that these are sequential orders and events in history. Here's a quote from Dr. Jim Hamilton. This is showing what John saw next, not the events of chapter 7 must follow chapter 6. If we understand that, that begins to help us understand the book of the Revelation tremendously. He isn't saying that historically or in a time fashion, chapter 6 follows chapters, chapter 7 follows chapter 6. He's simply signaling to the readers there's, there's a change going on here. And so what he's doing is he's drawing attention to what follows. And what follows are details that serve the teaching. Remember, the details in prophecy in the Bible are not the end goal. We are not supposed to spend all of our time trying to figure out the details that John is describing, but instead figuring out what the details are teaching. And so the details in this text are found in other passages of Scripture. We study the Bible first looking at them then, the original author, the original audience, then looking at the rest of Scripture, then pointing to Jesus, and then once we understand that, now we can get to us now. And so when we begin to look at these details of four angels, four corners of the earth, four winds, we begin to look at other scriptures to see, are these details found elsewhere? I'm going to give you some passages you can write down and study later. Zechariah 6 verse 5, Ezekiel 37 verse 9, Daniel 7 verse 2. These are other accounts where you see four angels, four corners, four winds. Those details are intended to teach something. And I would also give you two other passages, Matthew 24, 31 and Mark 13, 27. Now, why are those two important? Because those two are the words of Jesus where Jesus, in his Olivet Discourse on the Mount of Olives, is teaching the disciples about the future. But remember, when we studied Mark 13, there are two seasons of future that Jesus is teaching. One is the future where Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed in 70 A.D., But he's also talking about the way distant future when the final judgment will be poured out on the earth. And he uses this phrase, the four winds of the earth. Now please bear with me on this. I'm modeling to you how to study scripture. And when we connect those dots with the rest of scripture, we realize that John is seeing something that the rest of the scripture supports. And these four angels are empowered to bring judgment upon the earth. It says in verse 3, they are empowered by God to harm the earth and the sea and the trees. And the symbolism that John uses here to describe harming and judging the earth, do you see it? Is wind. It's right there in the text. Now this is likely similar 
to the four horses and the four riders, or it might be describing that. But these are wicked, divine beings who are going to bring judgment upon the earth to execute God's judgment upon the earth, ultimately bringing final judgment. It's interesting that it says, verse 2, I saw another angel ascending. Look at the phrase, from the rising of the sun. Do you you see that in the text? This is why here at Ascend, we ask you to bring Bibles, to open Bibles, to, to look in the text, because this is not just me coming up with a homily. This is me doing my best to be able to take this ancient text that you and I can read in our English language to show how we can study it and understand it. It's right there in the text, from the rising of the sun, literally in the original language, from the east. And if you're familiar with the Bible and the patterns of the Bible, that phrase, from the east, is important. Let me give you some scriptures. You can write some of them down. Genesis 3.24, when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, they were cast out to the east. Chapter 11, 2, one of the reasons why God was angered with the people of the earth is that when they were following after the flood, they were fruitful and they multiplied, but instead of filling the earth, they settled in the east. Chapter 13, verse 11, when Abraham and Lot were splitting ways and Abraham gave Lot the opportunity to choose where he wanted to settle. Instead of settling in the west, the land of promise, he settled in the east, Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, there's so many great passages. Uh, Matthew 2.1, remember that. Where did the wise men come from? The east. And you begin to see patterns in the Bible that the east is usually associated with being outside of the promise or the covenant of God. Not always, but by a pattern. And so this original audience would have heard this in the original language, and I think they would have been expecting a wicked angel because the wicked angel was coming from the east. But this is not a wicked angel. This angel comes with the seal of the living God. This is unexpected. And the angel now commands these four angels who have been empowered to bring judgment upon the earth and commands with the power of God to say, you must not harm the earth yet until something, right? What does it say in the text? Until we have sealed the servants or the slaves of our God. I love that. Listen, if you ever want to do an amazing study, read the book by John MacArthur called Slave. Most of the time in the Bible, whenever you see the phrase servants of God, literally in the original, it is slaves of God. And in our culture and with our history, that that term just puts up alarms, doesn't it? But when we begin to see what the Bible refers to with the term slave, it really puts us in a position to better understand our relationship with our God. It says, we have sealed the slaves of our God on their foreheads, and man, here's where it gets a little crazy. And I heard, underline that phrase, I heard the number of those sealed 144,000. I think the word sealed here means secured. Would you write that down? Secured. You know, starting out as a couple, we did not have a whole lot of money. 
And so we would make decisions sometimes that were a little bit stretching. And one of them was that we wanted to buy a gazebo. You know one of those gazebos you can put on your patio and it blocks the sun, you can put lights on there, it almost turns the outside into a living space. And, and so we purchased that gazebo. And I put it together, which that's a miracle in and of itself. And I remember, you know, you know sometimes when you accomplish something during the day and it's, it's like you just want to keep looking at it before you go to bed. And it was one of those and I would like turned off the light and I'm like, no. <laughs> and I took it in. Oh, it was beautiful. I dreamed that night about the gazebo. That morning I woke up like it was Christmas going downstairs to put the patio furniture out to enjoy that gazebo, and the gazebo had turned over. <laughs> that gazebo had a broken frame, and that gazebo that evening was in our dumpster. The reason was because a windstorm had come up that night, and I had not read the directions to make sure it was secured. You see, friends, there are a lot of experiences that we have in our lives that are windstorms. They can occur in the form of suffering. They can occur in the form of economic upheaval. They can occur in the form of a virus that we might not know how it started or we might. Life is filled with windstorms. But what Jesus is revealing to John is that God's elect are sealed. Now what's interesting is the phrase here begins to get a little bit crazy because we haven't seen a whole lot about Israel in Revelation up to this point. In fact, the references to the Jews in chapters 2 and 3 were actually very negative and were used symbolically. Remember, John, Jesus was, was writing to the churches and John used phrases like the synagogue of Satan. And so now all of a sudden we see 144,000 and it says in verse 4, sealed from every tribe of Israel. And this sounds a little odd, doesn't it? And it says back in verse 3, they were sealed on their foreheads. Here's what I would submit to you of what the foreheads mean. The foreheads carry the idea, G.K. Beale says, of authenticating or designating ownership. So again, let's not wrestle with too long what the forehead seal is. Let's not worry about, is it a tattoo? Is it a chip? <laughs> the point isn't the details of the forehead identification. It's what it teaches, and that is that these people are identified as being owned by God through Christ. Man, that's awesome. These slaves of our God were owned by God through Christ. Now, the 144,000 requires explanation. As I mentioned before, the Jehovah's Witness take this literally, and I did some research this week. Here's the phrase that they say, is that this little flock of 144,000 will rule with Jesus in heaven. Now, we could unpack that more, but that's not the point of this text. There's others who would say that, look, it says they were sealed from the tribes of the sons of Israel. Do you see that in the text? 
And if all we're doing is reading this passage and we're taking every word literally, then we would say that these are Jews. But remember, the Bible requires us to understand how the Bible interprets itself. And so we in the 21st century are not the final authority to be able to just simply read the text and say, oh, this is what it means. The Bible is. And when we understand how the Bible explains and unpacks prophecy, we must move beyond the literal at this point to see what the rest of Scripture says. And I think what the rest of Scripture confirms is that this is a symbolic representation of believers of all time. Now let me show you four reasons I think that's the case. Number one, consider Revelation 1 through 6. Consider the emphasis of Revelation 1 through 6, that in heaven there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, Revelation 5, 9. Remember that God is revealing the mystery through the apostles of the New Testament, that God's plan for his people was never to be limited to an ethnicity. God's plan for his people was never intended to be limited to some horizontal detail. Here's some passages, once again, that will reinforce this. Romans 10, 12. Galatians 3, 28. Colossians 3, 11. And then the entire books of Acts and Ephesians remind us that God's plan for his people were never limited to horizontal identities. And so when that has been the progression of all of the Bible, by the way, that's not just the New Testament. The Old Testament describes the furniture in a dimly lit room, and the furniture is people from all over the world. And when we get to the New Testament and Paul begins to talk about mystery, that's him turning the lights up so we can see the details of the furniture, and that is the people of God are from all tribes, all tongues, all nations, all economic backgrounds, all social classes, all genders. That's pretty cool. So why would we expect now that to change, that now he's zeroing in on Israel alone? Here's the second consideration. Consider the details of the tribes. Consider the details of the tribes. If you've studied the Old Testament, you would expect the first tribe to be mentioned to be either Judah or Joseph. Joseph and his sons were the ones that were given the birthright of Jacob. So when it comes to the order, Joseph's sons should have been at the beginning, or if you're looking at the chronological birth order, Reuben would have been first. But who is the first? I'm sorry, I said Judah. It was Joseph's sons is what you would expect. But here you see it is Judah. And who is the favorite son of the tribe of Judah? None other than Jesus himself. So immediately you're drawn to consider that this is symbolic. You also don't see a mention of Dan or Ephraim, do you? Those are two tribes that were of the 12 tribes of Israel. You don't see them here. You see Joseph included. He's usually not included. And you see Levi included. He's usually not included. So immediately, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you begin to see, wait a minute, This is not necessarily a literal unpacking of 144,000 individuals from the literal tribes of Israel. Here's the third consideration. Consider the number. 144,000. That's an interesting round number, isn't it? 12, 12. 
Whenever we begin to see these round numbers, we begin to see 12s as we've seen before in the 24 elders, as we'll see in the 12 gates and the 12 pillars of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, we're immediately drawn to symbolism. And then number four, consider history. Consider history when the 10 tribes of northern Israel were taken into captivity by Assyria, most of the tribal heritage genealogies were lost. Then you had interracial marriage. And it is safe to conclude that by this time in history when Revelation was written, very few Jews could have traced their heritage back to the tribes of Israel. This is fascinating, isn't it? Because again, when you read verse 44, you're thinking literally 144,000 people. Literally, these are Jews. But I don't think that's the case. I think this is symbolic, showing completeness, showing who would be sealed, the slaves of God or the people of God who by faith in God are adopted as sons. Here's a quote. The sealing enables them to respond in faith to trials through which they pass. This is awesome. Friends, again, you may land differently than where I landed on the 144,000. Charity, much charity. But the fact is, what is it teaching? It's teaching this. The sealing enables the followers of God, the people of God, to respond in faith to trials through which we pass so that these trials become the very instruments by which we can even be strengthened in our faith. Hallelujah! Do you see the superpower that this is? So that even the suffering you're facing today, even the suffering you've experienced in the past, even the suffering, salafaso, that you might experience in the future, God uses those as instruments to strengthen your faith and to ensure that you are his and that you will not derail. Man, we should just stop right now. But there's more. The second training ground for understanding and applying our superpowers that we are washed, number two. We are washed. Look at the phrase at the beginning of verse nine. After this. Again, he's not saying this is chronologically sequential. He's signaling the readers that he has something else to show them. And I think what he's doing, listen to this, beloved, is giving a different angle to the 144,000. It's interesting that he says in verse 1, I saw, after this, I saw, and he says in verse 4, I heard. Then verse 9, he says, after this, I looked. And I think those verbs are telling us that he's hearing, he's seeing, he's hearing, he's seeing the same thing. So what is the description here? Well, isn't it interesting? after he's just unpacked all of this detail of tribes of Israel and 144,000, he says in verse 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. Oh, that's awesome. And what does he use to describe these? They're from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. And remember, this is not a formula, I don't think. This is not intended to motivate missionaries to make sure that every tribe on the earth has one representative from it. It's intended to, mot- to motivate every Christian to share the gospel. 
every Christian to pray for friends and family members who seem like they will never give their life to Christ. I pray for President Biden. If there is ever someone who appears to never be able to surrender to the gospel, it would be him. I pray for his soul. I pray that God saves him because there is no limit to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this phrase is intended to motivate. It says, verse 9, that they are clothed in white. Remember, being clothed in white throughout Revelation indicates what you are given to those who conquer and endure. Conquering and enduring is faith. It's Hebrews 11. And that is not limited to the church age. It is not limited to, to the last seven years of history. It is believers of all time. These have been given a white robe. And they've been saved out of the great tribulation. Now dispensationalists would say this is Daniel's 70th week. This is the final seven years of history. Here's a quote that I agree with. The New Testament seems to see Jesus' resurrection at the beginning as the beginning of the last days, doesn't it? You ever see in the New Testament how Jesus or the authors of Scripture say we are in the last days? You remember how the Apostle Paul was writing to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4? And remember, they were beginning to be fearful because, and, and sad because friends and family members who were followers of Christ were dying, and they're starting to say, wait a minute, if these are the last days, I don't understand. The last days began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the New Testament seems to see Jesus' resurrection as the beginning of the last days, the 70th week, and the, is the whole period between the ascension and the return of Jesus all the persecution, all the suffering, all the tribulation is from the ascension to the second coming, including that escalation just before the final judgment of God. I don't think the great tribulation phrase here is referring to the seven years at the end. I think it's referring specifically to the period of time from the ascension of Christ to his second coming, that whole time is the great tribulation. But it's no different than the tribulation that has been experienced since Genesis 3 in terms of God's judgment is being poured out on creation for sin. And those who conquer and endure till the end of their lives will be clothed with white robes. They will not break. They will not be lost. They will not derail those who are sealed. They will join the 144,000 and the numbers that are impossible to number, the slaves of God. That's us, beloved. Wow, that's awesome. Now, now, as an original audience, you might be reading this and hearing this and saying, okay, I get persecution. I get the pouring out of judgment on the earth and all of the corruption that is in the earth. I get that, but, but what about my sin? What about the dark stains on my past? What about as a Christian, can you relate to me? Sometimes as a Christian, you think things, you say things, you do things that you think, ugh, why did I do that? What about that, God? 
I mean, are you going to be able to get me to the end? Are you going to be able to ensure that I'm sealed to the end? You know, when you share the gospel and the good news of salvation through Christ, you get excuses for people who don't want to respond, don't you? And one of the responses I so often hear is, God can never forgive me. You don't know, Pastor. You don't know about my background. You don't know what I've done. I'll hear people giving testimonies in their baptism. We've got a baptism class right now. It's so great to see a room packed. People will give testimonies in their baptisms, and they'll say things like, God radically saved me. And usually what they are talking about is activities that they participated in that would cause church people to blush. And I get that. I understand it. But it's time that we realign ourselves with what God's word says about us. Here's some passages to write down. Romans chapter three, verses 12 through 14. Ephesians two, one through three. God is in the business of washing our garments white. You know what's interesting to me is we would expect here in the text, okay, well, if God can forgive people, we would expect God to be able to wash garments and produce white, but not this cleaning agent. The cleaning agent, verse 14, is what? Look at the text. The blood of the lamb. Wow. Beloved, when we begin to understand this, we can understand that nothing that we have done in our past makes God's salvation for of us more radical than someone else. Because we are black in our sin nature. And we might express that sin nature differently, but the fact is, is we are all the same color black. We are all dirty. We're all depraved sinners and any moralism that we had before the cross of Jesus Christ is just as selfish and prideful as those who express it in more shameful ways. What an amazing truth this is. And people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, people who have expressed their depravity in all kinds of different shameful ways become worshipers. Look at what it says in the text. They worshiped. They had palm branches. Palm branches throughout Scripture are used to describe celebration. How can someone go from an enemy, me first, self first, lust first, to Jesus first, celebrating him, the blood of the Lamb? No matter what deep stains you seem to have in your life, they can be washed white and brought where? Where, Jesus? Where will you bring those with a white garment? Look at this, to heaven. That's the descriptions that we see. Oh, follow me on this. Verse 15, his temple. What is his temple? It's his presence. Would you write that down? This is not a building. This is not a a building that we have in Jerusalem. It is his presence. You can write down Revelation 21, verse 22. It says that in heaven there will be no temple because Christ is there. 
Verse 15, he will be their shelter. The word in the original is to dwell. That is a theme that goes from the garden to the new Jerusalem. These people who are washed white will dwell with God and he with them. Revelation 21, 3, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will be their God and they will be his people. That's what these descriptions are. Verse 16, there will be no more hunger. Verse 16, there will be no more thirst. Verse 16, the sun will not scorch them. Verse 17, there will be no more tears. Revelation 21, 4, this is heaven. Verse 17, the lamb, look at this. You see the the, the irony here. The lamb will shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. Revelation 22, verse 4, symbolically describes heaven itself. No matter what you've done, no matter how ashamed, no matter how hopeless you think your spiritual state may be, the blood of the Lamb can wash. And what happens when that happens to you and what that happens when that happens to me? We will declare his praises. Verse 12, we will worship him. Verse 11, we will celebrate. Verse 19, nothing and no one is beyond his washing. That is a superpower. So now let's apply this. Number three, how are you using your superpower? So, so what is a superpower? I've kind of danced around it. Let me give it to you in one sentence. Our superpower is that God's character guarantees his promises. That's the superpower. That God's character guarantees his promises. 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 So, beloved, listen. The opportunity you have to read God's word today is an opportunity for you to grow in your superpower because his word reveals his character. The primary objective of the Bible is to introduce us to God, not to talk about us. This book, from Genesis to Revelation, this morning, I read from the book of Joshua. I read about tribal inheritances. Interesting, isn't it? And I'm reading all of this, and it would be so easy to just, just glass eyes. I mean, this city, that city, blah, 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 blah. What does it tell us about God's character? Listen to this. Joshua 18, verse 1. The land was subdued. Same verb as Genesis 1, 28. God keeps his promises. The Bible reveals the character of God and our superpowers. God's character guarantees his promises. So these churches, these seven churches in Asia Minor, they're looking at their circumstances and they're being reminded through this, God knows he's sovereign. This is all working according to his plan. It's a pattern that repeats over and over and over and over, continuing on to our day. And that heaven says, the throne, the one who is seated on the throne, the living creatures, the elders, the angels, the saints who have gone before us, represented in the 144,000 and the numberless multitude, they're all affirming this over and over and over again. And so in chapter 7, we get to breathe and see that we are sealed and we are washed. So five points, beloved. Write these down, but more importantly, let's live these out. Number one, be encouraged. Be encouraged. No trial can derail you. Wow. Oh, and there are some hard ones. 
There are some hard ones, and sometimes, beloved, we, we try to endure them alone. But with the resources God has given us, no trial can derail us. That's what 1 Corinthians 10.13 says. There is no trial that has overtaken us, but is common to man. God is faithful. He will not give us a trial more than what we can, it, we can handle, and he will give us what we need to endure it. That's what he tells us through his Holy Spirit, through his word, through brothers and sisters in Christ. But so often when we have a trial, we don't access his resources, and then we wonder why we derail. Be encouraged. No trial can derail you. Number two, be comforted. Be comforted. Those going through trials are still experiencing God's plan. It is not surprising them, surprising him. And I, again, Salafaso is a great illustration of this. As he wakes up every morning wondering if it's his last, as he gets ready for his March 14th scan that will reveal some more data, has the tumor grown or is it staying the same? In fact, while I was there, they just realized it was a year ago to the day that he actually medically stopped having his heartbeat. Every morning, he doesn't know. Every morning, we don't know. Be comforted. Every detail of our life is being ordered and authoritatively administrated by our great God. Number three, be, careful. be grateful. Be grateful you've been washed. Oh, I love the book Gospel Primer. Brothers and sisters, repeat the gospel to yourself every day because the time of awakening, we, we, we were studying, you know, you're looking at what's going on in Asbury, you're looking at what's going on in Cedarville, and, and I think God is stirring. And we very easily settle into the spiritual slumber, and the reason for that is because we don't remind ourselves of the gospel every day. When we realize that our garments were dark, but the blood of the lamb has washed them. Oh, make that an opportunity to be grateful. Number four, be celebrators. And Kansas City did that just a couple weeks ago, didn't we? For a football team. How much greater for the team that was described in two angles in Revelation 7, and even more importantly, our owner, general manager, quarterback, king, Jesus Christ. Number five, be conquerors. Be conquerors. Revelation doesn't end here, and neither do the tools to equip us to conquer and endure no matter what we face today or tomorrow. Be conquerors. Keep conquering for the glory of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this breath, but even in this breath, I'm out of breath. What a glorious chapter. And yes, there are some details that are difficult to understand. There are some details for us to be able to recognize that we still have learning to do. But I pray that what has been taught through these details has been clear this morning. That our great God promises to seal and wash those who are his so I pray that if there's anyone here that has not been sealed or washed because they have not surrendered to the gospel, that today would be their day. I pray for those who have been sealed and washed that you would awaken us from spiritual slumber. 
May we gain confidence from this superpower that you are who you say you are and that your promises are yes and amen in Christ. May we be encouraged to conquer and endure for the glory of Christ. It's in his name I pray and all God's people said, amen.